Welcome to Teachers Talk Texts, the podcast where English teachers share their insights and interpretations of texts currently studied in BCE English. I'm your host, Claire Mackey. Let's dive into today's episode. Thank you so much to Angela and Pauline for joining me today to talk about The Golden Age by Joan London. And I'm going to start where I always start, which is to ask you, what do you love about The Golden Age? I think one of the things that I loved and especially teaching it was the almost the the simplicity and the accessibility of the language also it's not a tome so the students don't get put off by size let's say but having said that you then start reading it and you go my gosh there's just so much here it is just rich with intention and with relationship and with meaning and the the historical references, all of those things that I think just make it a wonderful read. And and in teaching it, I found that I was also teaching a little bit of history, let's say, just to put it into context and say what was happening in Australia at the time and why do we need to know this? So that's why I loved it. I didn't look at at it as a a love story, although the, the students, I think, like to to, to um, look at that element of it. And I, I was saying to Pauline, I feel that the students want Elsa and Frank to end up together and have this lovely relationship at the end. But that's, that's not what it's about. So as you sort of tease it out, you come to understand that there's so much more than just a, a love story. It doesn't give us that Hollywood ending, does it? That no, definitely not. No, we're positioned to expect it's a bit challenging for students to find a, a resolution that isn't mm. that doesn't all tie it up neatly in a bow. Exactly, mm. exactly, which is what mm. they like. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, a lot of what Angela said too, in terms of its simplicity at an entry level, but it's such a nuanced book with such beautifully drawn characters and the the characteristics of, say, Sister Penny and Ida and Maya and their lives and what they're doing. It takes the reader, in this case our Victorian students in 2020, back to 1950s Perth. So in that sort of historical context, you're taken into a completely different world which is so remote from what we have at the moment living in Victoria. But it also paints a picture of this emerging city, emerging country that's come out of World War II. It's in the most remote capital city in the world. It's this vast state. And then all these different characters are brought into one institution, the Golden Age, that is painted as such a warm and loving environment so that all these people come there and it's like a microcosm. It provides in so many different ways for these people who may be unsettled in particular ways. So with Maya, Maya's constantly drawn back to the golden age and Sister Penny. And then for Margaret, it's that opportunity to see her daughter that's been constantly denied her. And the little girl that comes from Willuna, which is... I don't know, 2,000 kilometres away. It's a long, long way away. And so all of these people have come down to Perth to be in this one institution that can only take 14 children. I also felt like the the golden age itself, the facility is like, to me, it is like an all-encompassing kind of character, which is almost, as Pauline suggested, they're like holding these stories, holding these people and trying to make some sense 
of the life that they're living for the gold certainly the life that they've come from mm. and how different that is but also for the Australian children who have had a, a terrible tragedy before them and so I find that the golden age just holds them closely and provides a like a safety net I suppose given that the staff are so connected to the children and are so determined that they do well, that they sort of keep up with their classes with Mrs Cinnamon, as Frank refers to her, Mrs Simmons. And yet the classes are not the most important thing. The most important thing is that they do their physiotherapy and that they learn to walk again. It's a focus of, of the character of the golden age that, that London allows that to happen, I think. It's interesting even in the way that London has constructed the text in, I think, the first, I want to say 14 chapters, each a, a different character she introduces yes. us to, surrounding, yeah. like you're saying, Angela, surrounding the golden age, mm. and the beautiful characterization that she uses. And then as the novel progresses, we see more and more setting more and more broad settings i suppose as as the golden age releases mm. all of all of the children and also the parents throughout the novel i want to come back to this idea of the historical context that you're discussing because i think on the fact that we do need to know a bit of history to understand the mm. text and yet at the same time perhaps students this year might have a more nuanced understanding mm. of what isolation and of a disease that leads to stigma mm. Yes. Um, and exclusion. I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit. Well, certainly when we studied it this year, we had, were just going into the thought that we might not be back at school. And so I think it has made a difference to their, the students thinking about what it is to be involved, the fear, the fear around the unknown and how it can be passed on and the consequences of that. I think that the students this year are going to certainly show an understanding of what of the consequences of that. And I think London has done that particularly well with the chapter, The Queen's Visit, mm. and through the Bennets and, and their concern that perhaps they might not have got an invitation to the garden party because you're in here. And I think one of the things that some students miss in considering that environment is that the children who are at the golden age are no longer infectious. They've come out of the um, infectious diseases branch of the Royal Perth Hospital or wherever they've been to be rehabilitated to learn to walk again, to, to manage themselves in the broader community. So even though they're not infectious, there's still that stigma. And, of course, Margaret had her experience in the butchers mm -hmm. um, where people didn't want to be near her and that devastating effect. And the priest and the, the pastor or whoever he was. I mean, something that she has, like turning to the church for, for comfort and for solace at a time when you are so desperate and to be turned away like that it would be completely harrowing, especially at that period of time. So mm -hmm. it's something, again, that our kids maybe don't fully understand in, in 2020. But, and I think that's why it's important to make them aware of that as well, that this was... The isolation and the ostracism was so completely devastating to people like Margaret and for people like the Bennets, but for entirely different reasons. Different reasons. Yeah, for entirely different reasons. I think that's really valid there. You were saying something about fear, Pauline. There's that wonderful chapter where Margaret comes to visit her daughter and 
Elsa kind of doesn't want her there because she is so frightened of not being able to do what she needs to do. And, and she's scared that her mother might in some way hold her back because she has to be this thing for her mother. She can't be strength for herself and for her mother. And she lives in fear of not being able to walk again, of not being the person who she wants to be. And I think what is, always stays with me is that these are children going through these really traumatic, it's just it's such an overused word, but these terrible experiences where they have to deal not only with their condition, but with people's responses to their condition. And I think that's where you kind of feel for Susan Bennett. You just want to reach out and hold her so tightly and say, look, I'll look out for you, even if your parents won't. Whereas with Margaret, Elsa is everything to her and she's scared that Elsa is going to outgrow her because of the um, experience, because she has, Elsa has had to be so self-reliant mm. and, and Margaret, and she's, I mean, Elsa did that anyway. She did that for Margaret. She was always, she was the one who always helped at home. Margaret has relied on her, whereas now Elsa has to rely on herself. And I think Margaret doesn't know how perhaps to best support her. I mean, she wants to and she adores her, but she probably doesn't. And I get the sense that she wants to be with her more. She wants to help her more. And she's terribly frightened that her daughter will outgrow her, that she won't have the skills needed to support her, which is why I love the fact that she tells her sister-in-law what, what to do with it when later on, which is, of course, she's going to, she wants to go to university and be a doctor. Yeah. And her sister-in-law says, well, who would want to be treated by her? Well, why wouldn't anybody want to be treated by her? Just because she's wearing calipers doesn't mean that she's deficient in any way. So I just, I love that bit where she finally socks it to her. And she's so, never had that opportunity to, as a woman, I think that to think about the, also the historical context and the roles of women uh, mm. in the 50s in Australia, mm. uh, Margaret would probably have never stood up to anyone, let alone Jack or her sister-in-law. That wouldn't have been kind of, comfortable or or no. encouraged by society either oh, I need to remember that with margaret yeah, absolutely i always also feel that she that margaret is almost representative of, of what it might be like to be in a patriarchal type society where she says to her father when she's getting married i've, I've married someone just like you dad and she has someone who doesn't love her for who she is but for what she does i guess yeah. and so she bears children raises children looks after the house, the house. Nappies, does all this which is why that chapter margaret in her garden is just one that i just adore where the the garden becomes her her, her haven Yes, absolutely, absolutely, where that, that's where she finally realises, heck, all this is here and I've missed it. I've given myself to the minutiae and, and the ridiculousness of life where this is what's important. I, I find that there's a lot of growth in Margaret, I think, but, but I feel that that's almost, rather than the, the parent encouraging the growth and development in the child, it's always almost worked the other way, the way. Where because of Elsa's situation. Margaret has had to kind of stand up and I think she values the person she is because of what of the way that she supports her daughter. Mm. Mm. I think what you were saying Claire was interesting because London has drawn three the three women Ida, Olive and Margaret mm. a sort of representative of different ways in which women would be living their lives at that time and and Olive Penny is a woman mm. ahead of her time. She's Absolutely. 
She's not your typical 1950s single mother. First of all, she is a single mother, even she's widowed, but women weren't really out there in the workforce in the 1950s. Certainly nurses might have been, but her complete, I guess, self-sufficiency is really interesting. And her understanding in the, the chapter, The Loving Body, her understanding of her body and its needs. It's almost like it's a separate entity in a way that she knows her cycle well. She knows when she needs contraception and when she doesn't. And the visit from Colin, the policeman, she knew it was that her intuition again was right. But that sense that there's no commitment. Mm -hmm. She's not looking for a partner. Whereas 1950s society was pretty much that women need to be married yeah. and, and have children and mm. provide in terms of service for mm. their husband rather than being a self-sufficient person. Mm. And I think that that's a really well-drawn contrast to somebody like Margaret. And then, then of course, there's Ida, who's mm. another... Princess Ida. Princess, Princess Ida, Ida, she's referred to. <laughs> yes. Yes. Who, who, who's the artist who's... Yeah. Uh, who has come from a completely different world mm. to Australia. So that's sort of the arts and culture of um, Budapest mm. to what she sees as a sort of an outpost of the world where the mm. colonials are and she's a bit of a snob, so hence the Princess Ida. Mm. And so there's a sense that Ida is the new Australian who doesn't quite appreciate what she's what Australia is providing for her at that stage. And so there's all these, the characters are so interesting in themselves. And they're really, they are also quite intricate because I go back to what you were saying, Pauline, about Ida and she, she is culture, she is, she is pianist, she is artist, she is all these wonderful things. And yet all of that is whacked on the head because of the war. She has to learn to fend for herself, to protect her child, her husband's taken away, and then she comes to Australia. And I sometimes I get really cross with her and I want to say, listen, lady, <laughs> you're, in, you're in an amazing place and this is an opportunity for you now to show, and she does, I suppose, at the concert, but to show what you can bring because she hates the place because Frank hates it. So, again, he has to try and and he prefers his father to be there rather than her because he doesn't have to kind of try so hard. She doesn't inspire anything in him, I don't think, even though she could. Mm. I don't know. I could be be a bit wrong there, but I just I find myself getting quite cross with her a lot of times. I just think... She's a pessimist, isn't she? And she she views her life as cursed, which I get her perspective. She experiences World War II. Mm. She's forced to flee the the city that she loves and adores. And then she comes to this new world and her son contracts polio. And that feeling, that sense of unfairness is is visceral, I think, in the way that Mm. London characterises her. She's been dealt every every terrible blow in that regard. Particularly, I think... When Frank becomes ill, she stops playing. playing yes. So the, the, the music was kind of almost like a life source for her, I think. And she's kind of lost it twice. So yes. now, now, see, now I'm being kind to her. I just, sometimes <laughs> I like her, sometimes I don't. I just think, 
we were saying, Pauline, weren't we, the other day when she's with the Zanettis and even the Zanettis are Tuscan peasants to her. And yet mm. such a world away from what Australia had to offer. I just, I would like her to be, I think she's been beautifully drawn. I think it's the intricacy of the character. And I think London's done an amazing job, but because you kind of want her to do something else sometimes. And although she's I always so say, to, yeah, of course, you know, yeah, of course. And I always say to the, to the students, just because I'm saying this, you can't put this in an essay. Mrs. Parnay said, no, you can only rely on what's in the text and yeah. use that. But as far as trying to sort of generate or get an idea of the complexity of, of the character. Well, yes. I think she can be read, as all these women can be read in multiple ways, and we'd want to encourage students to develop their perspective. If they feel a sense of frustration with a character, to look at what is it that London's doing in her construction mm. to position us in that way, and why might London be evoking this sense of frustration in us as a reader? Because I think that will lead us to her ultimate authorial intent or that what sort of values she is herself endorsing yeah. I think I mean all the characters if you think about them experience disappointment and hardship mm. no one's life is perfect happy perfect. all the time happy or even happy most of the time I feel yes. like that's why the, the characters really do face some significant hardships but it's maybe more about what we do to overcome those hardships that London wants us to, to start thinking about it. I think Maya in that respect is mm -hmm. an interesting character and I say to my students you can't just write about Ida and Maya as a one unit yeah. we've got to look at these two people separately or mm. two characters separately because London treats them separately as well yeah. I mean they are together but Maya he lost his whole family mm. There's a beautiful section when at the concert when Albert's family comes in and he's numbering them off because he's seeing himself yeah. as one of those children and his sister and his brothers and they've all gone. But he is able to sort of embrace what Australia has to offer for him. Mm. So while Ida might be seen as a pessimist, he in a way is an optimist. He, he's living a completely different life. His working for Bickford's and delivering soft drinks mm. is so far removed from the businessman out there in his shorts and, you know, his sun hat and his sunglasses and getting involved in the, in the community that he is now in. So he seems to make that transition possibly through the help of somebody like Sister Penny and that relationship and the golden age itself into embracing Australia. What did he say? The best had been the glamorous love of his life. Yep. And yep. and Perth was the wide hipped girl. Yes. And he would he would learn he would learn to embrace her. I just think that's beautiful now. And that connects to that idea we were discussing earlier about London using setting as character. Mm. You know, the fact that these settings are described as women Oh yes, yes, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's just it's 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 just a, it's a beautiful, a beautiful thing because and he is not going to forget Hungary. He's not going to forget Budapest, but he doesn't give in to the nostalgie, as Ida refers to it. He it's, it is something that was part of his life that happened. He will not forget. But this is where he is now, and this is what he has to embrace. On page eighty six, 
and he's reflecting on the fact that they wanted to go to to Canada but this was the city they'd been offered and had accepted they were safe here but even now at rush hour the wide streets felt empty that was the bargain he'd left his city and would never return how short-lived gratitude was it was like this Budapest was the glamorous love of his life who had betrayed him and I think that's just such a mm. powerful word there Perth was a flat-faced, wide-hipped country girl whom he'd been forced to take as a wife. Only time would tell if one day he'd reach across and take her hand. And he will. He will take he will. her hand. He will do that. And I believe that he wants Ida to do that as well because I think he, her happiness is important to him and he recognises that she, like at the concert, he just... He hears her play and he recognises the talent and, and how much joy. Even when, when she's practising at home before the concert and he loves it and he loves that, that she can find such, even though she's not happy with herself at that time when she's sort of doing the scales and so on, he wants her to find again that joy that, that playing gave her. Mm. It's just... Or just go on from the concert because the concert is a turning point in the novel for not just Ida but we were looking at to how it I mean again it this was bringing all the people together who were part of that community the extended golden age community but there was something Frank said that they sat quietly with one another for Frank the music was still with him to hear those pieces again was like a reunion though he would never tell Ida that mm. for the first time since he fell sick he had a feeling of strength he would never tell Ida that because yeah. that's Frank mm. he's quite selfish Yes, he is. So there are moments with Frank when you think he is quite selfish. So mm. he steals from his mother. Mm. He's the prescription pad. He and also that. with the stealing of the cigarettes, he yes. takes joy and delight from how frustrated she will be <laughs> when she goes to light up a cigarette and she can't find them. Um, so yeah. kind of, there's, yeah, there's that cheekiness and selfishness, I think, about him. But does it too come out of that idea of survival? Yeah. So having lived through the war and, and being confined and removed from his family and that, that sense you're, that you've got to look out for yourself. Mm. And no one else will look out for you. There's no that's one right. Else. And when you're all alone, you're alone with this disease as well, that yes. you do have to look out for yourself. But I, there is that comment from Ida too in terms of that chapter. They take the weak ones first, wasn't it? Um, mm. She wants that, him to walk. Yeah. Even though it's hard, he wants, she wants Frank to walk. It's about how he's going to survive this yeah. in this new world as well and where the attitudes were very much like those expressed by Nance, that these people were cripples. Who's going to want them? He'd just got into the selective entry high school mm. and then he got polio. So where does this lead him in his future? For they were emigrating for a future, weren't they? They were. That's right, absolutely, yes. for, a, yeah. for a new life. Um, and they were so shocked at the life that they ended up with. This yeah. idea of Frank being selfish too, just, just one thing while we're in this chapter of the concept, that last line of the chapter, that El we get Elsa's perspective in this beautiful... I do love London's use of the third-person omniscient voice and so we dip into all the different characters' yes. perspectives. But Elsa says, once she belonged to the whole world... Now she belonged with Frank. 
and this idea that he also dominates her attention as well and is almost jealous if she's giving attention to anyone else. And yes. originally Elsa, I think, puts her hand out and says, no, no, stops that. But after a while, it's, it's like he just overwhelms her. And That's right. You get that sense that he has taken her over. So there's mm-hmm. the chapter he goes looking for her and she's with um, mm-hmm. Rayma. Yes. Yes. The baby. Rayma. And he gets very impatient when she's not yes. there. And then London draws that together later on saying then they got to this stage where they were constantly looking for the other. I mean, the novel starts with, does it not? Let me get right back to the beginning. Mm. He's looking for Elsa. Yes. Chapter one. It sets it up. That, but where was Elsa? That, but the, where was that Elsa? One. Yeah. Yes. You were saying too that, and again, I think that I might be drifting, but the fact that even though they do look for each other, he, he Frank, is far more, I think, dependent upon Elsa than she is upon him. I just feel that she has a stronger sense of self and, and what she wants. And she's happy to be with him. She loves to talk to him. And, and she, there's a page, which now, of course, I can't find, where she says about the way that they, they do look out for each other and look for each other because she can tell him anything and he seems to understand. But, but he is so dependent on her to be his muse, to be the one who will facilitate his writing. As Pauline, when we were saying that Sullivan had been kind of the, he was the the master and Mm -hmm. Frank the apprentice, he now needs, he needs more to encourage, to encourage that or or to to continue with that. And he can't kind of do it on his own. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I wonder if that's reflected too in the the looking right to the end, the conclusion of the novel and that he ends up, alone whereas Elsa goes on to have a family and family yeah and Elsa Mm. is still everything he writes is for Elsa yes Yes. still all these years later never moved from that obsession whereas Elsa has gone on to she hasn't responded when he publishes his books and sends them to her she doesn't respond Mm. so she has moved on with her life but they will always have that connection as well so she's I guess more independent far more independent and I, which is interesting also it is interesting and, and kind of concerning I guess because of where Frank has come from being with Julia and Hedwiga and having those terrible experiences he's not very good at being independent I think Elsa is she she has developed sort of more strength I feel than he did. And just the fact that when he came out of the attic and wasn't able to speak, I mean, I can't imagine that for a child, that would be absolutely, it's, it's just complete darkness, a complete... Mm. It's trauma, is it? Well, I mean, I know that, we, we used that yeah. word before, but I think it's a fair word to use to describe what happened to you. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And mm. it's almost like in modern day terms, he's suffered a kind of PTSD where yeah. you know, he's, he's not able to, and those small dark places still frighten Yes. Still, still like claustrophobic within him whereas for for Elsa I think she had a life that was obviously there was an element of freedom even though she was doing so much at home but she was able to ride a bike and do different things and to live to live 
a little bit the life of a child before it was taken away. Whereas I think for, for Frank, that innocence was taken away much earlier and perhaps he hadn't ever had a childhood. Exactly. I could be talking absolute nonsense. We actually hadn't had a childhood. Mm. And so he doesn't then know how to be more independent. Mm. I like that. I'd not, I'd not actually even thought of that as a rationale for his behaviour. I think I'd assumed his selfishness came from Ida. That was my initial reading of him and went, well, Ida behaves in quite mm. a selfish, hedonistic fashion. She's almost even selfish with her music. I know we've talked about the concert, but one of the families asks if they can hire her and does she yes. not say, like, you can't afford me? You know, mm-hmm. I, just... that was, I think that was the Bennetts. <laughs> then, yeah, ironically. Yes. With the, they so then, then, what's his name? Rodney. Rodney and Ticker. Rodney makes a anti-Semitic remark. Mm. Well, not a remark, a gesture that rubbing the fingers together. Again, London paints a picture of Australian attitudes. Yeah, and uh, that's very subtle. Of the time. Oh, yes, subtle. it's very subtle. Very, very subtle. So you go, what the heck did he mean by that? What? But it's... it's... To understand the connotation, it, it speaks volumes about the perspectives at the time. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. We haven't, I mean, I know we talked about the historical context in, in regards to the attitudes of Perth with women, but the roles of women, but there was a lot of, there wasn't a, a wide range of religious perspectives or ethnicities or nationalities in the 50s. So we had such a massive migration through the latter half of the 20th century yeah. post World War II. There are, and there's fleeting references to the, the Gold's Jewishness and the impact mm. that that has on them and the way that they engage with the world. There's also a, a part where Elsa says that they've been taught and she can't, under, she can't imagine mm. what that would be like, what, when what happened. Her, what has happened. She cannot imagine that at all. It's just completely beyond the realm of, of what they know. And that's when she says, I think, that her father went to Rottnest or Rottnest something. Island. Yeah, Rottnest Island. Rottnest Island. And that was his, his posting during World War Two. So she has no idea, which, and you, you wouldn't expect her to, but no. she's also shocked by that, that, that these horrors could have happened and, and when, they, when they just didn't know, when they just didn't know. The worst thing they had to do was don't let the lights on or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, yes. It was, yeah. Uh, Maya does talk of it, actually, in that, that same part we were discussing before with his comparison of Budapest and Perth, and he talks about the fact that, to love a place, to imagine yourself belonging to it was a lie, a fiction. It was a vanity, mm. especially for a Jew. Yes. Yep. And he talks about Perth as being an innocent city because mm. nobody here could imagine the waters of the swan yes. running red. Red, yeah. The golds have had such a horrific. And it's interesting too that London doesn't describe it in a lot of detail. It's no. all kind of a spectre that hangs over them and us throughout the text. Yeah. She doesn't need to because we all know how horrific World War Two was. Mm. He also uh, says at the bottom of that page, the dead okay. came with you. Yes. Yeah. So and that's that, like, that burden is saying, yeah, Pauline. Mm. Yeah. But I was going to say it's probably not a burden, but in a way it is that that history is never going to leave them. That what they went through, like he was in the work camps, who knows what he was doing there, mm. but and what he saw. And they, such an unusual event that the three of them were reunited. Mm. So that the, their family was whole at the end, but each one of them damaged in different ways. Yeah. 
and what they do beyond that, what, how they see the future um, is different as well. And I think it's, it's interesting that, that both Maya and Ida die when Frank is in his 20s, I think. They don't survive that long which I don't know if that says anything in particular about the war or whatever or their lives in Australia because once he leaves, of course, he refused to be their only reason for yeah. living. I will not be their only light. light. That's oh. it. I will not be their I only light. I will not be their only light. I just love it. Yeah. I love it. And we haven't even spoken about Sullivan. No, I keep thinking, oh. I keep thinking to talk of him. <laughs> okay. Let's, Let's talk about Sullivan. Let's. Oh, let's Please. talk about Sullivan. Sullivan and Mr. Backhouse. Yeah. And Sullivan, he is the light for his father, for his family. Mm. He is the light for all of them. And I think when he, when he becomes ill, his father is completely gutted by that. He had everything was hanging on this, on this boy and, and he, was, he was just going to be so amazing and yet he comes to this untimely end. And what was it? Our boy has lost his life. life. Isn't that right? Mm. And I was saying to Pauline the other day, when he when he comes to the hospital, he kind of owns the place, but but he has his head down when he comes in. But after Sullivan has died, his head up strides out because we've got to get on. Life life kind of goes on. There is that that sense there as well. He's completely gutted and devastated by his son's death, but he has to continue. Now, we don't know very much about him other than Ida wants to make him German. Mm. Yes. Backhouse. In terms of Mr Backhouse or in terms of Sullivan? So he was, remember, they wonder about what he, and they find out that he was a public servant and Frank has this image of him doing menial jobs Mm. at some stage. Because he doesn't really understand, you mean? Well, what public service means. Yeah, yeah, that's right, because he has um, a car. He comes in a car that drops him off and picks mm. him up. But I think it was interesting in terms of Sullivan and the way in which his situation is described. So certainly he's the rower, he's academic, he's athletic, he's the, the apple of his father's eye. And then he's sort of isolated in this, the infectious diseases ward. Mm-hmm. And just before he dies... Well, just before he's well, in, in the chapter, we're told that Sullivan was getting better. There was this sense that there was hope that he was getting better. He spent time out of being out of the lung, five minutes at first, then ten, then one day for half an hour. So this sense of hope, mm. only to have that dashed yeah. and that he died during the night. And I guess London's getting back to that sense of insecurity. That there, there are no deals here. There are no, there are definites. no definites. No definites, no. No happy he, endings. No. He does this so early in the text too to position us. This whole experience in the IDB is separate to that of, mm. of the Golden mm. Age. Yeah. But structurally, if we look at where Sullivan's you know, narrative is in, in the book, it's so mm. early mm. to really position us as readers to be wary for the rest of the text. That's right. Yeah. If someone so as significant as Sullivan can die, anyone, anyone could. Anyone can, yeah. yeah. And, which obviously is life. Well. I'm having a thought, ladies. Tell me, 
Well, we've been talking a lot about children and not wanting to be their parents' light. And we've talked today about Margaret and how she relied so heavily on Elsa. We've talked about Ida and her snobbishness, but also her focus on Frank. We've got Sister Olive and we've briefly mentioned her daughter and that she was a single mother. We haven't talked much about her daughter, Mm. but they are estranged. Is there a warning here from London? If we're thinking about her broader intent in the text, are we seeing a pattern here with parents who perhaps place too much significance on or too much weight on their children to define their own identities? And is she is she warning us that that's problematic, would you say? I hadn't quite thought of that, but I can see... Yes, I can see that. If, you, if you're thinking, too, that this novel wasn't written in the 1950s, it's a, it's a modern novel. It's fairly recent publication. So maybe that is part of that message that you cannot live your life through your children. Yeah, in, in that's some like way. a more eloquent way to say it than the way that I posed it. Yeah, you, you know, that, that your children are separate from you. They are individual human beings with their own hopes and desires. Certainly you have that influence, but in the end, they will make their own paths. So for Elizabeth Ann, she has actually chosen the path of probably the traditional 1950s woman that she's going to to marry and she's joined, become involved with this family who are quite religious, which is so different from her own mother, that she's actually rejecting her mother's values or morals and and saying, this is what I want. And she's quite conservative. She's the conservative, whereas Olive is much more liberal in her attitudes. Yeah. And I guess in a way that, that Elizabeth Ann is a rejection of that. She's more like her grandmother, I guess, in a way than... Yeah than her mother, that, that influence there. Because, like, I suppose looking at day and age, we encourage our children, don't we, to, to move out, to you know, live their own lives, get themselves organised and, and whatnot, mm. rather than be dependent on us or, or we be dependent on them. And for Elizabeth Ann, even though... So we look at Olive Penny and see her as progressive and liberal and, and, and values which we feel are important to instill in young women. And yet, even though Elizabeth Ann had that, was presented with that, it was, as Pauline said, she was, she rejected it. So I find that kind of interesting, that that's not who, who she wants to be. So does, does, the mother have, does the grandmother have more influence on her than her mother does in some weird way? Can we just not control our children? Is that Or our lives, really? Hmm. We have very little the- control. If you, th- if you go back to the, the children who are in the golden age, it's very much about them as individuals getting better and making their own path and forging ahead, that sense that they do grow up very quickly, mm-hmm. that they go from being a child, they have that, and then polio, and then through Frank and Elsa, they're basically becoming adults. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So what they go through forces them to to make decisions for themselves in a way, to move on with their lives and make the make the most of the opportunities that they have. You know, unlike what Nancy's as mm-hmm. the future for for Elsa, 
Elsa's been through enough to say, no, this is, I'm going to go for it. She's so determined and persistent. Mm. And that image of her that Jack paints of her climbing up the sand dune and just being just so, so determined to make it to the top just says something about what she has to do Mm. to survive. And there was also the understanding, wasn't there, that you wouldn't go and help her? No. But she, this is something she had to do on her own, that you, you wouldn't be the one to say, here, Mum, I'll give you a leg up. Mm-hmm. It was never going to happen. I'd marked here The Dark Night, the chapter called The Dark Night, which just kind of really goes back to what we were saying about that need to become self-reliant and so that these children, because of their condition and their illness and what they're experiencing, that they have to develop greater strength. So it's like if you lose one of your senses, the others you grow in another way. Where she has the, the dream about the captain and the and the sorry, the captain and the gnome. There's the, those references to light there. And it says the isolation ward, the nights with no end in the isolation ward when pain drilled into the deepest part of them. After it was over, like a terrible dream, you couldn't remember much about it, but you were not the same. Mm. So something happens to them. And I guess that fits too with this idea. Everybody has their own onset story. Yeah. But none of them are the same either. But this is the starting point for the change. On page 61, there's the gnome. And so this is still in the dark night. So for Elsa, it was as though there were another person inside her who had suddenly taken charge, a sort of captain who was going to hold on no matter what. The captain was still there. Elsa was not afraid anymore. So this, this finding that inner strength that we're talking about and that sense of determination, Pauline, that you were saying. But you needed to hang on to something, a hand, a thought, or you would go down. So the, the importance of really, really searching for something that's going to get you through this. I think that's important. And then the raucous crow who was mocking her, screeching, give up, give up. She was even hallucinating in that, the pain and the... Yeah, the yeah. and the, the, the crow is, is, that, is the fear element. So you've got nothing to live for, just give up, give in. And I think, is it there that there's also that incredible thirst? Yes, because she's it's after give up. Who was he? She cried out for water. There you and go. Yes, we were discussing the other day about water in in the novels. So there's some really obvious references to to light constantly, yeah. but the, this thirst, this the life giving force of water. So mm. Elsa's love of the sea, the baths, the angel baths, the chapter um, where they go to the the beach, the beach. Beach. Oh, and also angel wings where she's just floating yes. and finds her there. Yeah. Again, on that same page 61, perhaps I'm dying, Elsa thought. If she was, she knew her mother would also die. Mm. But the captain told her that was not her concern so that she has to develop her own strength, that she can't mm. be thinking about if I die, my mother will die. No, you need everything in your body to, to get you well. You can't be thinking about, about that. So I've, I've just noted here for myself this to divorce from your own feelings so that you are forced into a position where you are self-reliant. Feeling held you back. She had to cut off from everything else. Mm-hmm. Voices shouting in the wind reminded her of childhood. The lost world of grass and trees, sand and stones. She felt soft and peaceful. The pain had gone. 
So there's that loss of innocence, but the pain has gone and she hopefully, or it seems anyway, that she's finding that inner strength that's going to get her through this. And then the devil, this is on page 62, he was the devil, that tiny man who'd come to curse her. He couldn't take away her life, but he'd taken away the body she moved in. If she wanted to, she knew she could turn on the mocking sound again in her head. Once you'd heard it, it was never far away. So to me, it just, I mean, I, I keep thinking, okay, you're a child. And you see so often children who are, in our modern times, obviously devastated by illness and all that sort of thing. And, and you hear the parents talk about the, the sort of the strength that these children have. So it's, it's amazing. It's obvious, it's innate, but I think London has been able to tap into that so well. Like she hasn't sort of rubbed our noses in it, but she's just creating the situation where through the, through the images of the, the gnome, the captain, the maimed animals, all those things, creating a sense that, that there is, a, there is a, a deep need for strength, for strength of character, for strength of will, for strength to continue despite what's thrown at you. And you see, I'll just, I'll just take that point a little bit further. And that's, that idea is not just, I guess there's that strength of will in, in Maya and some of those other children, that these little vignettes of yes. the little things, Anne Lee oh. and, and Albert and his, his escape from the Golden Age. And it wasn't because he didn't like the Golden Age. He just wanted mm. to be home with his family and that trying to get his wheelchair up the hill. Oh, is that um, heartbreaking? Yes, oh, you just want to, <laughs> you can just imagine this little, what is he, seven or eight, yeah. trying to get home. And that sort of sense of purpose so many of the children had that might not have been shown with the their adults. But I think that, that in terms of Margaret, she, she eventually stands up to Nance mm. and Jack wonders whether or not he's treated Margaret so well and he should have made, been taking more notice of mm. her. And, and the fact that Ida too, she, she does something. She realises that Frank is, is in a depression and she makes that call to mm. Margaret to say, we've got, we've got to bring the children together to at least reconnect in some way. So that there's this sense of purpose that I think London admires. She's mm. saying you move ahead, you, you make the opportunities. Mm. And, and even though sister, you know, I, Sister Penny's demise in terms of the golden age, where it's untenable that she'd stay. Even so, she's going to Darwin and there's going to be this new opportunity. She's going to be in a hospital again. Page 209, she's going to Darwin. I've accepted a position as head sister in the infectious diseases ward. That's right. So she's taking on this new opportunity. Interesting, yet another very isolated city. So, yes. It's, is it a refuge? I don't know. It's, it's a new opportunity. It's a new opportunity, but it's also something that she's familiar with. And it's where, when you talk about purpose, she, she will have purpose. Yes. She will be able certainly to, to continue to achieve for herself. So her daughter's off getting married next month, off your hands, more like I'm off hers, she says. She's been swallowed up into what she's always wanted, a big, respectable family. And maybe that a good word here is that perhaps as far as Elizabeth Ann is concerned, 
Olive just ain't respectable, not, not in the way that, that she would want her to be. And just, I have a hunch that she's pregnant. Yes. The sea is there as well. Just that talk about water in that conversation between mm. Maya and Olive there, that the sea roared below them. Mm. Mm. I think water plays quite sort of that significant, certainly the, the life-giving force. I think that sounds so cliche, I'm sorry, but... Well, cliches are cliches for a reason, are they not? Literary <laughs> tropes occur because they They're make used so often. often. Yes, to, as readers. Mm. And I, I just think that Elsa, Frank, Maya, Anne Lee, they all have that, that reference to water, like Anne Lee needed to, to provide water for the Brumbies to be that helpless again. Again, that, that purpose for her too, Pauline. We go back to, to that mm. as a, another idea in, in the text, that what is one's purpose one's purpose is to to get well and then to once you've got well then you do something with that um, yes think in a second a second chance in a sense and, and you do something so perhaps mm. that's where the that kind of growth maturity i guess comes from in a sense maturity of thought it's interesting i'm just i keep I, as we flip through the book i keep getting sucked into her prose like i just she i start reading a sentence and then i i want to keep reading again yeah. yes but she says, page 211, Olive Penny, something that had oppressed her ever since the governor's meeting, so this oh, meaning that she would have had yes. to be fired, an intuition perhaps that loss would always run like a seam through her life mm. seemed to have lifted, being carried away in the sea wind. Mm. So there's that, there is that element of hope, even mm. though maybe it, we might feel hopeless about sister penny in in being excluded from her daughter's life and having to change jobs at the same time there's a sense of opportunity yeah, yeah. and I, th I think it's interesting she has had a lot of loss in her life her husband and then the american serviceman the loss of her her home in a way when edith died and she was evicted the loss of her job but but she's a very again she's very hopeful person she looks forward she encourages those children she's not somebody to wallow in the things that have befallen her to to feel sorry for herself she is very much that the nurse she's the one to help people repair so whilst it was just a thing to do before you got married you had to have a job so she did nursing but nursing became her calling and her relationship with Tucker was about being able to restore him some way so I think she's such an interesting character and she's so well drawn. Mm. And perhaps underutilised by students, I think. Often we get a passing reference to her in an essay response where actually it would it, it's a valuable thing to do to go back mm. through the text and consider her more deeply as a, as a significant character for discussion. Yes, I, I think agree. too often the students just really seem to rely on Elsa and, yes. uh, and Frank. Elsa. And as we said at the very beginning, wanting this lovely, happy ending and don't always look for sort of the minor characters and, and what impact they are having on the novel or indeed why they're even there. Like, why are they there? Why has London put them there? She could have just written a love story, but she hasn't. She's written something much, much deeper, I think. And Pauline, sorry, going back to what you were saying, or maybe it was you, Claire, about, about Oliver. So we've said she's certainly progressive, but I think London has crafted her that way kind of on purpose to show that, I mean, at the risk of sounding super feminist, but she's so ahead of her time. Mm. And it's what we would want for our female students to 
to embrace, to go on, to to take the challenges, to get up when you when you're kicked in the guts or whatever it is, as she is. Yeah. And she's not an old woman. She's like, I think she's just in her late thirties. Late thirties. Yeah. yeah. Correctly, she's a young she's a young woman compared to some of us, anyway. And and I think there's just a lot to be learned from her. Have her own novel, really. She could, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole novel there of what happens to her in Darwin, I feel. And also that lovely line where she says about Maya, oh, he knows where to find yes, me. Yes, yes. You know, she, she, the fact that they don't ever have a connection mm. doesn't, that doesn't matter to her. She admires him. She likes him. She's attracted to him. It isn't the right timing for them. No, that's right. But no. she's like, that's okay. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like yeah. the original, he's just not that into you situation. <laughs> and she has enough self-confidence to be like, that's yes. okay. Yeah. I don't need to be defined by the fact that a man, a man's, you know, attraction to me or, or viewing of me as someone to be romantic with. That, that doesn't define my self-confidence or my, my role in life. Which... Right. Well, she's she's, a, she's a, a, beaut- a beautifully crafted character, I think. I wonder then does this, and this, I can't tell you how naturally this happens, but I think we've got to this point where we go, okay, so we've got this text, we've got all these fascinating characters. <laughs> it's not just a love story. And so if it's not just a love story, then what is it? What, what is the point of this novel? If you're a student writing a response and, and we want to produce a commentary on what London's authorial intent purpose was, what would you, what would you say was her goal as a writer? It's just, it's kind of growing through adversity, I think. Mm. Really sort of simple, basic, cliche, but an adversity isn't even strong enough a word, I don't think. It's when, when, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. It's just you, you do the best you can with what you have and you have to rely on yourself a lot more than you, you think you do. And you can start, that can start as, as a child and it shouldn't just happen, I guess, because of an illness or whatever, but invariably it will when there's something really, again, I say the word traumatic and something really awful that happens to you that you learn how to, how to get beyond that. That that, again, Claire, isn't what's going to define you. I'm not defined by my illness. Mm-hmm. I am still going to strive for something. I would love to know what she thinks her intention was. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can ask her. Maybe I we could, can ask her because I don't. I'll tag, her in the, I'll tag her in the Instagram post and see yeah. whether, I don't know if she has Instagram. I'll find out and see if she does. I was going to say, I think it's also a, a novel of hope. Yeah. That, it, that I think in, I don't know if she wrote this, what was it? When was it published? 2015. So, it's only five years old, but the, there's a lot happened in the world since then. Yes. But this sense that, it, and it comes from what we were saying, Angela, that that things can befall you, but life can go on and it can be better and it can be different. And being different isn't necessarily bad. Yeah, that's right. That, that there is a world where maybe in terms of migration and the different people, that maybe that's what Australians need to do is learn more about other cultures and, and these people who, who are coming to Australia, mm. that we can all survive, that, that, that people working together for, for goals and that 
it's strengthening our individual resolve we can achieve. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was necessarily her purpose, but I think there's a lot about survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot about loss, but there's a lot about survival and going ahead and, and, and going forward. And although at the same time I feel a little sad for Frank at the end of the novel alone in his little balcony room overlooking, but he's had that wonderful experience with the, the little girl Edie too who he looked after. So there's, I think that, that a sense that the world is made up of so many different kinds of people, that our world is made and that we've all got stories to tell and so there are so many stories in the novel, but that there's hope. I think, I don't know if that's what she meant. Mm, well, yeah, I, I think I, I love what you've said and I think it's absolutely true and, and valid. And I think there was a time when I, yeah, when I have also felt a bit sad for Frank and yet I still feel that he's, he's, he's been able to, to achieve through his poetry and, and that that has given him a, a different strength, a different life perhaps. And maybe he was a little bit naive in thinking that, that he and Elsa would be, I don't know if he thought they'd be together forever, but that, that she was going to be his reason for being where he actually needed to be on his own to, mm. to, to come to that realisation. There was also something I was reading, and I can't remember where, and it was just a commentary on the novel that remember all those references to nature and to like with Margaret and, and when Maya's walking home and listening to the birds, the kids at the, at the water, all that kind of stuff, that, that there is this kind of greater good out there. So Pauline, like what you were saying, that these awful things happen, but there is hope. There is, there is goodness in the world. Now, I'm not saying that that goodness is God or whatever, but that there is goodness out there and that, we can perhaps um, lose sight of it depending on what we're going through at a particular time in our lives. And again, maybe that's particularly, maybe that's why she used children. Maybe that's why she used the whole polio thing because to take so much away from a child and yet to have these children then grow and to go beyond themselves, I think is quite significant. Yes. Don't know how I'd go writing an essay on it, but... Give it a go. I think there's some beautiful ideas there. And I think that what's important is even, and as much as I will tag Joan London in <laughs> in the post that Let I make, I will, I will. But I think what's important is not so much even what she intended, but it's what we as the readers of the text what we draw from the text that is most valid and as long as we can use textual evidence to support these interpretations we can argue whatever we like uh within reason i think Uh, but i think everything there's such beautiful meanings that you've derived from this text that are broader than just that love story and a real challenge perhaps to students to go go further That's the challenge. That is the challenge, to go beyond the little stories and look at that broader aspect. So any any topic that's going to look at those broader themes or the how sort of question, how does London develop these yes develop this idea i was saying to and this is probably out of context now i was uh, i was saying i've just reread the book i don't know how many times i've read it but i've just read it without all my notes scribbled over it so it was a really different kind of reading 
And what came through to me this time, because I first read it like when it first came out, so before it was on a year 12 list, and I just read it, and was the tone of optimism that comes through in any of the chapters that deal with the Golden Age Institution. Mm. So it was almost like an advertising spiel at one stage, Mm. the -the state-of-the-art facilities that it has. But there is that optimism in there, just in the tone of the writing. Yep, agree, completely agree. So it's purposeful in the way that she's constructed literally her sentences. And does that link, therefore, to these broader ideas that you've touched on in that despite adversity, there is still the capacity for growth, that there is hope, that we can survive despite the intense loss uh, and grief and and trauma that that life can expose us to Mm. as individuals. Mm. Yeah. And that there is a place when you mentioned grief, Claire, there is a, there is a place for that. And I think I go back to Margaret. I just love Margaret, Margaret in her garden. She is grieving. She is so devastated by what's going, what's happening to her daughter. And she's allowed to feel, she's allowed to feel that. And I think it's, it's important for, for students to see that you do, you, people grieve in different ways as well, but that she comes to realise that there is something much bigger and she's missed out on this connection with nature because she's involved with all this nonsense stuff. And I, I just, yeah, I, I just, I like that. I like that a lot about her. And I'm, I'm glad, as I said before, I'm glad she stands up to a sister-in-law. <laughs> I don't think London has drawn Nance as a character for us to admire. No. She's there for a purpose and perhaps to show that perhaps, I don't know, that's a good question. Why is Nance there? Why is Nance there? It's interesting too that that she and her brother are so close and he defers to her, Mm. which completely negates what I said earlier about patriarchy because he defers to her. He completely lets Nance say whatever she wants in preference to listening to Margaret. So it's like patriarchy's gone a bit skew with. Or does it show, obviously, there's opportunities for women to be purposeful and liberated and choose their own path, but at the same time there's an obligation to raise, to raise up other women and not mm. necessarily mm. to use whatever power that women have to... Because her power was that she had the car. Yes. That yes. was her power. Whereas the Briggs didn't own a car. So that's how Nancy could exert that power in a way. Wasn't it that car symbolic of her power? I hadn't thought about that, but yep. I've right. only just thought of it. <laughs> I just thought of it then. No, but, I, but it's interesting in these discussions how you, and this is what the students need to know, is that, that there are different interpretations and that the more you come to know the text, the more you'll think about some of these things. Mm. So, so why does he defer to Nance? He needs her to transport him to the Golden Age to see Elsa. But he chooses not to take Margaret because she's got to be back there with the baby. And that's just so wrong. Yeah. So wrong. Problematic. It is problematic. Ladies, thank you so much. On this, as you just um, said, Pauline, this conversation, even though I've read and taught the Golden Age, we've marked it and Mm. we've assessed it, Every time I have these conversations, I learn something new because of the insights and the different ways in which we approach the text, which I think is the inherent value of these conversations. Mm. And I hope that students all over the state will feel similarly about that. I I have to trust that they will (laughs) feel similarly about our conversation. I think, sorry, Claire, to cut you off, but this is 
what I would say to our students to really try and do. Like I'd say to them now, have you had a conversation with mm. even your group of friends? You go, nah, why? Because don't, it's not just what I'm saying. Don't regurgitate in an essay what I've said in class. Because as we've just said now, we, we're, getting, we're just getting bouncing ideas off each other all the time. And, and I yeah. just wish that they could somehow learn the importance of that. But I don't know if that's going to happen. Well, maybe this will be a way will. to <laughs> say again. We trust that it will. We will, yeah. We must trust. Yeah. We must. We absolutely must. But I'm very grateful to you both for your time today. The time goes so quickly when I feel when we have these conversations. Thank you for sharing your very, very impressive knowledge and, and insight. Um, thank no. you so much. Okay. I'm very, very grateful Thanks. to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. It was such a pleasure to speak to Pauline Canty and Angela Pane today. If you enjoyed this episode and want to be alerted to new episodes, please subscribe on whatever podcast service you are listening to right now. If you want to be part of the conversation, follow the podcast on Instagram at Teachers Talk Texts. Please share this podcast with any year 12 English students or teachers you know, and I will see you next time. Bye.